All right, if you have uh, Bibles, go ahead and make your way to the book of James. And we are in James chapter 3 this morning, which starts, uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, on page 1012. As you're turning there, I just invite you to consider this, um, which I'm sure is not brand new to you, but is really important for us as we prepare to read these words. Um, Words matter. Words matter, and words resonate. And we almost certainly recognize that, particularly when it comes to famous words from history, uh, famous speeches, famous books, famous documents. But as James is penning this letter to these first century churches of Palestine and Syria, it's not the grand moments or the the well-prepared words that he's primarily focused on. Instead, James is far more concerned with our moment-by-moment everyday lives and the words that we use in those. Every day, uh, there is purpose in our words that is far deeper than the ability to communicate. And we trace that all the way back to the creation of the world. Creation happened when? When God spoke the world into existence. And Jesus, the author of Hebrews, says, he is currently upholding the entire universe by the word of his power. And so likewise, as image bearers of this God, there's power in our words. Um, Our words are actually, in their greatest purpose, they are meant to be an expression of the creative, sustaining, redemptive power and work of God. Now, we probably don't think about that on a a typical day. We can miss that. We can live as if that's not true. We, We can use words flippantly, carelessly, Uh, We can treat our conversations throughout the course of a day simply as the communication of requests, the communication of thoughts and ideas. But in the design of God, there's something a lot more than that. There's a raw power that, as James is going to say here, can either be harnessed by the saving work of God or can be harnessed by the destructive fires of hell. So consider this. You can probably quote some of those famous words from speeches and books. But do you know what else you can quote? Do you know what other words that you'll you'll never forget? Those wounding, hurtful, humiliating words that another person said to you, maybe years and years ago, but you have not forgotten them to this day. The insult, uh, the attack, the degrading comment. Nor will you forget on the other side those really life-giving comments, affirming comments, the aptly spoken word that met you right where you were in a given moment and really almost sounded to you to be the voice of God encouraging you to, to press on in a particularly difficult moment of life. And these are the opportunities that are before us with our words every single day, the power to speak life or to speak death, the power to speak good or evil. And as James has already, back in chapter 1, introduced us to this idea that true religion involves the bridling of our tongue, he picks up now and expands upon the importance and the power of our words here in James chapter 3. So as we consider this morning the importance of our words, hear now and listen with open ears to this book that we love, the very word of God. This is James chapter 3, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, as we consider the power of words, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Three things. Uh, that we're going to consider this morning from this portion of James's letter. The disproportionate power of words, the destructive power of words, and the duality of words. So first, let's talk about the disproportionate power of words. Uh, James begins this portion of the letter with something that initially seems unrelated, uh, a warning directed to those who would be teachers. Not many should aspire or presume to be teachers, Because as James says, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That might seem out of place, but it actually sets up this portion of the letter perfectly. James is saying here that the tongue has a disproportionate power. And those who teach, they have an even more disproportionate influence with their words. So sinning with our words, as James says, is something common to all people. We all stumble in many ways. But because teachers talk more, They use more words because they speak from positions of authority, positions of influence, and therefore they have this this broader reach and impact with their words. It's especially important for teachers to know and to have this holy fear of the power of words. And as someone who is a teacher, I'll tell you, um, this passage is incredibly humbling and not a little bit terrifying. Because it's our sixth anniversary, I was curious about that this week, so I went back and looked. Um, Over the course of about these past six years, I've preached something like 230 sermons, and a a typical transcript of a sermon that I preach here is something like 3,400 words. So rough estimate, that's 782,000 words over the past six, I'm sorry, you have had to listen to a lot of words come out of my mouth in six years, 782,000 words, um, which is weighty. That's a lot of words. Um, there's, a, there's a weight to the responsibility when words are this significant portion of your vocation and of your ministry. 
And what I'm grateful for here is that James says, we who teach, in verse 1, because he's speaking about this not as an outsider, but as someone who himself feels the weight of teaching. And he has this realistic view. We will stumble with our words. If we didn't, we would be perfect people, which of course we are not. And yet, here's James still having the audacity to write these words and to teach these churches for their good. It means there's a way to carry the weight of teaching, the responsibility of that, and not be crushed by it. But here's what James is driving at. If you're not incredibly aware of, and you're not incredibly sensitive to the power of words, you should not be a teacher. If you just like novelty, and you, you, you like offering new insights, or if you like the influence that you get from teaching and positions of teaching, but you aren't constantly considering the impact of your words to either build people up or tear people down, don't teach. Don't teach. I know the appeal of a platform. I have felt it. I still feel it at times. And many go into teaching roles, especially in the church, uh, with dreams of building a big following or gaining recognition for their teaching. But here's the thing. The greater the following and the greater influence you gain— It's just that much more potential to abuse the power of words and to inflict harm upon people who are made in the image of God. And so teachers must have this continual sense of a holy fear of the power of words, or they just should not teach. Teacher or not, James's main point here in the first portion of this passage is the disproportionate power of the tongue. And he uses these two metaphors which illustrate it perfectly. The tongue is like the bit in a horse's mouth. So it weighs maybe a few ounces compared to the thousand plus pounds in strength of a horse. And yet, it's that bit that controls the direction of the whole horse. Similarly, huge ships that are driven by strong winds, they're guided by this rudder that's a minuscule fraction of the size of the ship and the sail themselves. How does that disproportionate power play itself out in everyday life? Well, one relatively recent example, in December of 2013, a woman named Justine Sacco was traveling from New York to South Africa. And during a leg of her trip, uh, she used her Twitter account to post some jokes about other passengers and about the nations that those passengers came from. And she said some completely inappropriate and offensive things. But when she did that, she didn't think much of it. Um, She's not a celebrity. She's not a public person. She had an audience of something like 170 followers on Twitter. And so she figured these jokes are intended for a few people, pretty small audience. She shut her phone off for the last leg of the trip, which was 11 hours from London to South Africa. And when she turned her phone back on upon arriving in South Africa, she had become a globally recognized name and had received tens of thousands of angry responses. Her story shows us the disproportionate power of words in more than one way. First, that what was intended as this joke, completely inappropriate to be sure, but intended as a joke for a limited number of people, quickly became a broad offense. It offended nations of people. And second, that in response to that, Justine herself was publicly shamed, verbally abused, forever labeled a bigot in ways that, according to a New York Times story two years later, affected her family relationships, her employment, her very ability to live a normal human life. The article itself is called How One Stupid Tweet Blew Up Justine Sacco's Life. 
So we would do well to learn from examples like that and to really heed this disproportionate power of words, especially in our day where the words that we use can be captured, preserved, and then instantly and globally distributed in places because of technology, because of the internet. So every careless word, every rant, every harsh opinion that you put out there, you should expect those words to hit the ears of an audience that you're not maybe anticipating or even intending it to hit. But think about this. Though the mediums are new, James had no idea in his mind that the internet would exist 2,000 years after he wrote this. Though the mediums are new, the truth is not. And the speed and the permanence and the reach of digital communication only highlights and exacerbates what James already knew 2,000 years ago, that words have this disproportionate power. Second, the destructive power of words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I think you would be hard-pressed to find a children's rhyme that is less true than that one. The reality is, is the opposite, that words often hurt more and that physical wounds often heal a lot faster than the verbal ones do. This phrase is so false uh, that I found myself curious, why would anyone have coined this phrase in the first place? Like There had to be some, some reason for that. And it's hard to trace the exact origin because there are a number of variations of that phrase. But it seems that the original intent was that it was coined to teach children not to retaliate physically. So when they were called a name by someone, don't punch them in return. It's a good principle. It's a good intent. But think about this. Someone penned that rhyme, those words, with good intent. But then along the way, the popular understanding became this lie that words can't hurt or wound us like physical violence can. So irony of ironies, these words have now wounded many by lying about and minimizing the wounding power of words. They've wounded people even as they've said words don't hurt because people own that and they think that that's true and they think they shouldn't be bothered by words, but they are. Words not only have disproportionate power, they have destructive power. And the image James picks up on is just like the wildfires we've seen go throughout California and the West Coast over the fall. They start small. The tongue is a small fire. Smoldering ashes are a campfire left unattended that soon becomes this massive fire that destroys, I think at last count, over 8,000 buildings, hundreds of thousands of acres of land, cost more than a billion dollars in damage estimated to repair, and ended the lives of more than 40 people. Words have that same kind of terrible potential for destruction. And James says here that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. And what he means by that is that in a moment's time, our words can mirror and give expression to all of the wickedness of the world that lives in rebellion to God and the world that he made. John Calvin put it this way, a slender portion of flesh, speaking about the tongue, a slender portion of flesh contains the whole world of iniquity. And that's why James says here that the tongue is set on fire by hell. He's not saying that as some kind of excuse, like the devil made me do it. He's not saying it that way. He says that because while our words have the ability to mirror the creative and redemptive power of God, they can also be harnessed by the powers of Satan and hell themselves to destroy. 
And some of you, I'm sure, have experienced this. If not all of you have experienced this in some way. Words have sticking power. Words are misspoken. Words are misunderstood. Rumors and slander, they destroy reputations. And words drive wedges between people, and they destroy relationships, sometimes in ways that are never repaired and never reconciled. And so this text merits some reflection from each of us in our own lives. How have you both experienced against you and then participated in the destructive power of words? Where have you been on the receiving end? Or, and, where have you been on the giving end of things like gossiping, belittling, cursing, bragging, manipulating, exaggerating, complaining, flattering, or lying? And where, where might you need to address some unresolved offense that exists against you? Someone used words against you in a way that was completely inappropriate and hurtful, and you've tried to maybe just forget it, but you can't. Where might you need to address that unresolved offense against you? And on the other side, where might you need to pursue repentance and ask for forgiveness from someone else for the way your, your words have hurt them? It's difficult to think about, but it's really necessary to reflect on this, to move this from head knowledge to, to a real heart knowledge and ownership of this. Because generally speaking, if you're sensitive to the destructive words that you've received, you'll also be sensitive to the destruction that you've participated in. And so to the degree that you've never really processed those hard words that were leveled against you and dealt with that, you'll have a good chance to to keep passing on more of the same, even subconsciously. So think about the destructive power of words, how you've received that, and how you might also consciously or subconsciously be, be using words for destruction in the lives of others. Third and finally, the duality of words. In addition to the tongue's disproportionate power, its destructive power, we are prone, James says here, to a duality of the tongue. And James has already warned about in the past the danger of double-mindedness, being a Christian of a double mind, having kind of one foot in this camp and one foot in the other. Here, he speaks about the incredible inconsistency it is to be double-tongued. Verse 9, With the tongue... We bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. There's no stronger contrast of this duality than the one that James highlights here in this text. To bless God, uh, to attribute worth, to attribute honor and praise to God, that's the pinnacle of of glorifying God. It is the highest and best use that our words can have. Cursing, and cursing those, as James says, made in the image of God, especially if it's the true form of of an ancient curse, where it's not just like a, a harsh word directed at someone, but it's actually saying, I hope that you are cut off from God and you are condemned for eternity. That is the lowest and worst use our words can ever have. And yet, as we all know, These words of ultimate blessing and ultimate cursing come from the very same tongue. And if you don't read this and at least a little bit in your heart go, God help me, then I think we're missing what James is driving at here. He says these things ought not to be so. God forbid that we ever become comfortable or desensitized to this duplicity that we're capable of. 
It's a form of evil that is unique to humanity to be dual and duplistic like this. As James points out, the rest of creation doesn't do this. It fulfills its purpose of being single-minded and singly-tongued in blessing God. Fig trees produce figs just like they're supposed to. Grapevines yield grapes, not figs, just like they're supposed to. Salt ponds yield salt water, and no spring vacillates between providing spring water one moment and fresh water the next. But we, the very image bearers of God, do precisely that with our words. The real issue, of course, goes deeper than the words themselves. And that's really the point of these last metaphors. As James's brother Jesus said before this in Luke chapter 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, the key line being, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So the duplicity, the dual, the duality of our tongues reveals the duplicity that remains in our hearts. It reveals this divided devotion in us that proceeds from this divided heart. So though it's tempting to hear James's words and to simply make a resolution or put a plan together to stop saying the destructive things that you say, the real remedy has to go deeper than a mere behavior modification. The real remedy is we need a new heart. We need a new heart. And even when we've been given those new hearts through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we need to live out of those new hearts and not the sin that remains within them. So men and women, think about it this way. Your tongue, your words, it's a diagnostic tool for what is in your heart. Just like your calendar and the way you spend your time, just like your wallet and the way you spend your money, the words that come out of your mouth, whether publicly or privately, or the ones that live like just on the tip of your tongue, even if you never actually say them, they point to this otherwise imperceivable state and condition of your heart. So think about the words that you said this past week. What does that reveal about what's in your heart? What is overflowing from your heart and is making its way out of your mouth? What are those jokes that you make? Maybe about a particular group of people that aren't like you and that you don't really appreciate. What are those words that come out when you're frustrated or when you're exasperated? I was reflecting on that this week, and I realized sometimes, often, I can remember seasons where I did this a lot, and then I do this intermittently all the time, where I'll just pause during the course of a day, and I'll exhale deeply, and the word that's like right on the tip of my tongue, whether I say it or not, is one of a variety of four-letter words. Just single word, single word. It's, what does it say about the condition of my heart when the overflow of it gives expression in a four-letter word, in a curse word. We call them curse words, right? What is going on in my heart when that's what's on the tip of my tongue? Will not that same heart, unattended to, unrepented of, unhealed, will it not find other expression in other words, in other circumstances with other people? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need new hearts. We need to live out of the new hearts that only Jesus can give. So let your words diagnose the condition of your heart that you might seek this ongoing transformative work of Christ in your heart and then speak out of the overflow of that. Let me close with this. I don't know about you, but when I read these words from James, I'm tempted to spend the rest of my life mute. 
Like, let's just say only what is completely necessary to survive and nothing else. Please pass the food. Thank you. And do that again tomorrow. (laughs) And that might be the best course of action were it not for this fundamental truth that God spoke the world into existence. That Jesus speaks and upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Jesus, there is no duality. When he cried out from the cross those three words, words, it is finished. It means that through his undivided devotion and obedience, the blessing of God's salvation will triumph over the curse of sin. It means that he will redeem what hell sought and seeks to destroy. When we speak as we've been created to speak, when we speak as God's redeemed and rescued image bearers, and when our speech reflects the creative, holy, and loving, and redemptive words of God, then in those moments, through the power of God himself, we proclaim restoration and renewal to the world. So think about it like this. Our society, our world, is a wild runaway horse, fleeing ever faster away from the good design of God but a bridle in its mouth can steer it a different way. And many of the people that you cross paths with every day, they are ships. It's an analogy used other places in scripture too. They are ships tossed violently by the ever-changing winds of popular opinion. But the voice of the people of God can serve as a rudder to begin to turn that. So before you decry or lament your marginalization as a Christian and retreat to a fortress— Remember that you don't need a large presence to make a large difference in the world. That our words, used appropriately, used for the glory of God and the good of others, have disproportionate and supernatural, even, power to change the course and direction of an individual's life and even of an entire culture and society. This is the real purpose and the real potential of our words. And it's the reason, it's the only reason, that we have the audacity to keep on speaking in spite of the great danger of words. Because the power of our words that are and have been and can be employed by the fires of hell for destruction can also be employed for the very deliverance of the world. And so as you reflect on James's words this week, don't just consider how you've experienced the destruction. Consider how you might use your words to build up and to bless, to push back what is dark in the world. And even as you start to dream about how you can bless people through our our Easter outreach efforts together, think about how in celebration of the resurrection, you can use words for their true, redemptive, and life-giving purpose. And I'll close here. Because God has spoken, and because Jesus is speaking and he's upholding the universe by his words, he will, thanks be to God, restore what our duplicity and our destruction wreak. And he will harness every last bit of the potential of our words to proclaim his deliverance to the world. So may we have a holy fear of the power of words. But in Christ, may we never run and hide from that power. Instead, may Jesus transform our hearts. And out of those transformed hearts, may we declare the glories of God. May we proclaim life and peace for the world. Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, help us, because our words are powerful, even if we don't want them to be. And they can be used powerfully in such a different direction. And so we look to you again this morning. Restore our hearts. Give us a new heart. And if you've given us a new heart, help us to live out of that. That we might speak out of the overflow of it. That we might speak the way we were meant to speak. Words that 
demonstrate the power of God himself to create, to redeem, to sustain, to save. And we desperately, when we think about our words, are reminded of our, of our ongoing need for your grace. And so we come now this morning recognizing where we have been responsible for destruction through our words and claiming your mercy yet again to forgive, to save us. And at the same time, we come to this table with hope because it is by your perfect obedience, your undivided heart, those words from the cross, it is finished. That you have rescued us and you will accomplish the full-scale scope of reconciling the world to yourself. So we look to you again this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.